the main reason I wanted you booked on the show is because the title of your book has the word rat fucked in it. I mean, that's just, that's just glorious. This is really like the anti-fresh air, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> From First Look Media and Panoply, this is Politically Reactive. I'm W. Kamau Bell. And I'm America's boyfriend, Hari Kundabothu. The show where two comedians try to make sense of politics in America. Or we just decide to talk to Dream Hampton every week. She cost us $8,000 for all the mics she dropped. Like, stop acting like there was ever a time. We wouldn't have Shakespeare, which you guys know was a woman, right? What? Yes. <laughs> Man, you don't know that? <laughs> On today's show, we'll talk about one of those aspects of our political system where if you like me... You pretend you know what it is, but you don't really know what it is. I'm talking about gerrymandering. And as we learned during this interview, we should really be calling it gerrymandering. And we also learned that while gerrymandering, or gerrymandering if you're nasty, has been screwing up this country since the very beginning, in recent times, it's gone steps further and has left us all not just fucked, but rat-fucked. Today's guest, David Daly, is the former editor-in-chief of Salon and author of Rat-Fucked. How the Democrats won the presidency but lost America. David will tell us why, in the wake of the 2010 census, Republican gerrymandering districts is unlike anything we've seen in U.S. history. And it turns out, one of the people who's behind this elaborate plan is our old pal slash George W. Bush puppet master, Karl Rove. Here's him recently talking about presidential candidate Donald Trump. Oh, I bet this is going to be awful. This has been about the most dreadful two weeks of a presidential candidate following his convention, and all of it has been self-inflicted. Wow, that was almost reasonable. However, the GOP red map redistricting plan is an act of demonry. We'll explain what that is and what it means for the presidential race. Will you unequivocally condemn David Duke and say that you don't want his vote or that of other white supremacists in this election? Well, I have to look at the group. I mean, I don't know what group you're talking about. You wouldn't want me to condemn a group that I know nothing about. I have to look. Okay, I mean, I'm just talking about David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan here, but... Oh, how'd that get in there? A callback to our Amy Goodman episode. We put things like that in the podcast so you listen to the old episodes. <laughs> It's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hey, Harry, what's going on, man? Hey, Emmy nominee W. Kamau Bell. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to call you that every episode now? Thank you for reading my writer. I appreciate that, my <laughs> updated writer. I'm currently in Seattle. Decided to take a little vacation. It lasted oh a day God. and a half. A day and a half, and then uh, around... Uh, Halfway through Sunday, I freaked out and went right back to work. I did go to the beach for 20 minutes. That was cool. <laughs> 20 minutes at the beach yeah, with Hari Kondabolu. Look at what sunlight felt like. That's a good show you should have. It, I mean, it was a great day and a half, and then, uh, you know, I, I didn't know I could be that free. Um, also, I didn't know. Did you know that people of color are still supposed to wear, uh, uh, like, uh, sunscreen? Yeah. Uh, yes, I did know that. Yes. What? Really? Yes. Who told you that? Yeah. Uh, that's because since since I was a kid, the sun has you know global warming, climate change. The sun now burns everybody. It doesn't what? really. The sun is an equal opportunity burner. <laughs> Wait, so I've been going without sunscreen this whole time. Well, if people of color are going to be wearing sunscreen, they should make like a a cocoa butter variety so we can smell the way we like to smell, which is like chocolate. And I think uh, melting chocolate is a wonderful thing for all people. <laughs> Another another good business opportunity from one Hari Kondabolu. I'm trying to get I'm trying to get some endorsements, my man. Got to get that cocoa butter money. 
Yeah, well, today on the show, we it's a good one. Uh, we've had a lot of people reach out to us and say they wanted us to talk about the subject of gerrymandering, so we will be doing that today. But before we get into that, uh, Hari, I think you have a, a, I don't know if it's a, a clarification you'd like to make yeah. about something we did last week on the episode with Dream Hampton. Well, in the Dream Hampton episode, uh, I, John Brown was mentioned and the need for more uh, white people to be like John Brown, who is the abolitionist who raided Harper's Ferry. And and was eventually uh, killed for doing that, an attempt at an armed rebellion. And I said that John Brown was out of his mind, and a lot of people wrote that two things. One, that I was going after mental illness, which I, I don't think that, that really was the intent. Uh, also, I didn't say crazy for that reason. And also uh, that uh, how how is he out of his mind for trying to free slaves uh, using, uh, you know, an armed rebellion, having an armed rebellion? Um Here's here's what I was trying to say. John Brown planned a raid of Harper's Ferry with thousands of freed slaves, right? And only like 17 showed up and he still went for it. Like there's there's something about that. Like he could have been like, "All right, yeah. let's let's do this tomorrow." But or yeah. maybe a month from now, but he still went for it. There's something about that that's a little strange. Secondly, once you put up the once you put up the Facebook invite and and you buy the uh the selection of meats and cheeses and assorted vegetables from Costco, you kind of have to have the event. Right. Well, I don't really. <laughs> you could cancel the event. If no one shows up, you can cancel the event, Kamau. You can just do it another time. But then the question is, what do you call that when you go, we need thousands of people to pull off this rebellion. 17 are here. We're going anyway. I mean, what, eccentric? What you, you, it's more than eccentric. I think you call that excessively optimistic. Maybe, but here's the other thing, right? He asked Frederick Douglass... And Harriet Tubman to join him, and they said no. And there's something about that—the <laughs> fact that he met with both of them. And yeah, was, two black people who had done things that they probably been accused of being out of their mind. Both right. like, both like, I'm going to escape slavery. Some some other some other enslaved black person like, are you out of your mind? Could have cost them their lives repeatedly, repeatedly putting their lives on the line. So I mean, I think there's something about that that is more than not practical. You know, that I think he. <laughs> You know, you could say, "Oh, it's impractical to try to do a rebellion with seventeen No, something was a little off. Uh, so, and I think you can be righteous, and you can be doing the right thing. And I love John Brown as a historical figure, and I think he's extremely important. And to me, he's a a certain kind of guide for white people, somebody that they should think about because he's somebody who sacrificed everything for 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 the cause. Of of black people for for abolition, and at the same time, you can look at that fellow and be like, "Wow, he's a little bit off too." That was a strange thing to do. He could have could have waited. He could have waited a little bit. To be clear, we are certainly sorry for using the phrase "out of his mind" in that way, and we also need to come up with a phrase for when somebody's not thinking clearly, but not necessarily mentally ill. Maybe just not thinking clearly. But again, it was even more than not thinking clearly. Yeah. <laughs> He, I mean, but anyway, can, can we just say he John Browned it? Can we just like he John Browned it? Yes, yes, yes. A case of righteous and excessive optimism. Yeah, there you uh, go. For a good cause. Righteous and excessive optimism that puts your your personal safety at risk. That that's John Browning it. And with that, we'll talk about, you know, we appreciate the feedback we get, good, bad, and indifferent, although not much of it is like, I don't really think about you that much. Uh, it's usually <laughs> one extreme or the other. 
So we are going to do a thing. We're doing a, a politically reactive mailbag. We're going to do an episode in a few weeks. And if you have feedback, you can use the hashtag, uh, hashtag politically reactive, or you can email us at politically reactive at firstlook.org and tell us about uh, what you think about the show, thoughts, corrections. Uh, you know, if the show has helped you get through a difficult place or if the show is taking you to a difficult place, let us know <laughs> and we'll address it on a future podcast. We'll have a whole episode to address those things. Absolutely. Now, uh, let's get David Daly in here. Ding dong, ding dong. That's that music that comes in there. Hey, David, thank you for joining us on the show today. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll, uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, the main reason I wanted you booked on the show is because the title of your book has the word rat fucked in it. I mean, that's just, that's just glorious. This is really like the anti-fresh air, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh, so, but how did you pitch that title to the publisher? I would imagine the publisher might have been like, can we say rat f Can we say really, really bad? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I think that they understood this as well. You know, I mean, I think we are, we are living in a vulgar age and- you could have called this book Gerrymandered Nation or, you know, a colon, a really long book about the thing that put you to sleep in eighth grade civics class and <laughs> nobody would have bought it and we wouldn't be having any of these conversations. Uh, when you take people and you dump the cold bottle of water over their head that is rat fucked, it makes people sort of stand up and say, hey, okay, what happened here? Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation about gerrymandering, which is not something that people always <laughs> want to do. But, I mean, I am arguing that this is, at its core, the very reason for the political extremism and dysfunction and brokenness in our politics. And that you can't fix any of the other things until you fix the way the lines are drawn. I wanted to start with a basic definition. Can you explain what gerrymandering is in the simplest terms possible. Yes. Um, let me drop a little Schoolhouse Rock as quick as I can. Hey, learn about the USA. Every 10 years, the Constitution mandates that every legislative line in a state legislature, state house, state senate seats be redrawn. In most cases, those state legislatures then go ahead and redraw all of the national congressional districts. So gerrymandering is the art of trying to draw these lines in such a way that your party gets the most benefit from them. Politicians have done it forever. You can trace it back to Patrick Henry trying to gerrymander districts in 1788. It's named after Elbridge Gerry, the former governor of Massachusetts who did a fanciful job of drawing the state senate lines around Boston in such a way that a political cartoonist referred to it as a salamander and his name was forever attached to it as the gerrymander. <laughs> and so so basically there's no good way gerrymandering is is inherently evil is what you're saying. It is inherently evil. And yet it changed forever in 2010. Politicians have done this for ever. And as a result, the media, everybody thinks both sides do it. It's just part of the game. The game changed in 2010. And that's the story I'm trying to tell here, that from 1790 through 2000, gerrymandering is in its horse and buggy era. And in 2010, it 
it's a rocket ship. This is gerrymandering on steroids. It's something completely different. So what happened in 2010? The Republicans in 2008 get blown out on just about every level. Barack Obama wins. Democrats retain the House. They take a supermajority in the U.S. Senate. The demographics appear to be on their side forever. People are talking about a coalition of the ascendant. They're wondering, if you go back and watch the tape of election night at 2008, if you've got a lot of time on your hands, that's a lot of fun. (laughs) Um, And there are all of these political scientists and Republicans, the editor of National Review, Laura Ingram on Fox News. They're all talking about the end of the Republican Party as a national party. And... What a handful of Republican strategists understood was that 2008 was a bad election for them, sure, but that the really important election was coming up in 2010, that that was a redistricting year. It's a year that ends in zero, so it's a census year, and that if they could win in 2010, they could redraw the lines and do it in a different way. This is spearheaded by an organization called the Republican State Leadership Committee. And what they understand is that it's state houses that really control redistricting. And that if they could control state houses, they could really cheaply build themselves a firewall in Congress. Hold up, wait a minute. Hey guys, it's Erica again, one of your politically reactive producers. Apologies to our political science professor listeners out there, but we're about to get a little basic, a little schoolhouse rock. So, there are 435 congresswomen and congressmen in the House of Representatives. Each represents a particular congressional district in their home state, and it's up to each state to decide how its district lines, that is the physical boundaries of each district, are drawn. Now here's where we get rat-fucked. For 42 states, district lines are drawn by state legislatures. Which means that if a certain political party owns enough of a state legislature, they can literally redraw these lines to benefit their own party. So if a district is drawn in such a way that it consists of mostly Republican voters, then it's a de facto Republican district that will presumably elect a Republican to the House of Representatives. This is exactly what the GOP did back in 2010 when they started pouring money into state congressional elections. Got it? Okay, now back to the show. So they focused essentially on 107 state legislative seats in 16 states. Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin, mostly blue and purple states. And in these states, there were 18 chambers that were separated between the two parties by fewer than four seats. So what they did was they went after control of all of these chambers in such a way as to design themselves veto-proof majority over the maps that would be drawn the next year. They wanted to have every seat at the table in Ohio and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and all of these states when the maps were being drawn. And that required winning a bunch of statehouse seats and then having the political will and determination and map-making technology to make it real. 
if I didn't know you better and I didn't know you had written for reputable publications like Salon, I feel like this is like one of those YouTube videos about false flags. (laughs) 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 Carl Rove announces this strategy. Carl Rove announces the plan in bright, flashing neon letters in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, not as reputable a publication as Salon, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, in March of 2010, Carl Rove writes... The party that controls redistricting can control Congress. And he lays out exactly the towns they're going to go to. He's like, we're going to fight in Portsmouth, Ohio, in West Lafayette, Indiana, and in Round Rock, Texas, in Murraysville Township, Pennsylvania. I sound like Howard Dean here. Yeah, I was going to say that. I should give a scream. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. But um, this is the plan. It's... Rove announces it. The Democrats, I guess their copy of the journal didn't show up that day. I don't I don't know what happened. But they not only didn't have the imagination to come up with this on their own, they didn't have the political skill to play defense against it, even in these little statehouse districts. It's a massive and, and catastrophic strategic failure on on the on behalf of the, the party, and it doomed President Obama's second term. Can you talk about <laughs> again? It's that YouTube video again. <laughs> Can you talk about the technology? Because you said a lot of this is based on the technology that was used. Is it sophisticated technology? Is it like fairly straightforward? And the Democrats just didn't get it. I just don't think of the Republican Party and technology, which is why I'm a little. Well, surprised this is by the it. amazing thing. I mean, the Democrats get all of the credit in 2008 for the way that they use social media to identify voters and to turn out new voters. And everybody says, well, Silicon Valley is all Democratic. The Republicans will never figure this out. This is a different kind of technology that the Republicans use in 2011. This is map-making technology. This is GPS. This is cartography. And it's the kind of thing that didn't exist in previous years. In Even in 1990 and 2000, which are still years that we think about as being sort of part of the computer era in some way, they're still drawing maps on parchment paper. What the Republicans use in 2010 is a program called Maptitude. And the beauty of Maptitude is that it's it's incredibly sophisticated and it comes loaded with all of the census data on it right away. So you already have that. So you've got all of the amazing demographic detail in there, religion, economics, And then you add in all of the public record data sets that have become available by then, including all kinds of voting records. So you can add in voter turnout. You can add in voting results, precinct by precinct, block by block. And now all of a sudden, when you're drawing these districts, you can move the line street by street and you can see how that changes the partisan makeup of what you're doing. Then factor in all of the private data sets that you can purchase and add in, whether it's magazine subscriptions, whether it's consumer uh, preferences, whether it's social media likes. You can buy all of this stuff for pennies online, factor it into Maptitude, You've got a cloud's worth of consumer preferences of demographic information. 
these districts look strange and everybody likes to look at these districts and say, oh, that's really funny looking. It's a Rorschach test for something. It's, it's a snowball running down a mountain. But there's a snowball's chance in hell that those lines aren't there precisely and exactly for a very real reason. I mean, I got out and, and drove them and you can see it when you go street by street. The technology here is unbelievable and it's been used to resegregate us. I just want to talk quickly about the product part, the fact they can actually track your consumer choices. So you're telling me they can look at data like, oh, this particular area buys a lot of Axe body spray, Republican. This part uh, of the the country, uh, you know, this uh, this part uh, buys a lot of Doritos, uh, Democrats, something like that. Like they actually, those are terrible examples, but they can actually make (laughs) assumptions. Like this is a Wall Street Journal house. This is a New York Times house. Exactly. A lot of people are subscribing to Vibe magazine here. A lot of people are subscribing uh, to Guns and Ammo, and they can use that and make assumptions. And these days, once you have somebody's consumer preferences, you pretty much know everything you need to know about them, and you've got a pretty good sense of how they'll vote. And when you can maneuver a line as simply as you can in these new programs, it's very simple to just see what the results are by flipping it this way or flipping it that way. When people of color just have to start uh, subscribing to guns and ammo to throw them off, I guess. or That's not a bad idea. It's actually better than most of the strategies that the Democrats are trying right now. Oh, God, that's brilliant. <laughs> it's just like, so then you go, every black person's house I go to, we just have stacks and stacks of guns and ammo magazine. Right. <laughs> Got to fight the revolution wherever you can, brother. <laughs> I mean, it would probably scare the Republicans in other ways if you did that, so I'm not completely sure I'd recommend that as a strategy, but I mean, it might work in terms of fooling them on on the demographic side. It also might get a SWAT team to your house these days. (laughs) Cost-benefit analysis. We need to study that more before I start doing it. I was just about to order guns and ammo until you said that thing, David, so thanks for for more thought. And you drove around Detroit, uh, a neighborhood in Detroit, to sort of demonstrate this to yourself, right? I did. I went out and I drove every line of Michigan's uh, uh, 14th, which is one of the most wildly gerrymandered districts in the country. The entire purpose of that district is to connect the the poorest neighborhoods in Detroit with uh, Pontiac, which is about 30 miles to the north, um, so that the Republicans could pack as many African-American voters into one district as possible and make all of the surrounding districts whiter, more Republican, more suburban. It works incredibly well. In 2012, Democratic candidates get 240,000 more votes than Republican candidates in the state of Michigan, and yet Republicans win nine of the 14 congressional seats. So they send a delegation of nine Republicans, five Democrats, even though they lose the popular vote by 240,000. That's how powerful these lines are. And when you get out and drive it, you can see that they have drawn these lines to sort of etch into the political map, the very line between hope and despair sometimes. You can drive two streets and the property values collapse, the kind of houses collapse, the Schools look completely different. There is a reason why they've drawn the lines on one side and on the other side. And it gives you different representation. It gives you different political power. I mean, something in Michigan that people don't uh, think about enough is also how this works on the state legislative level. I mean, in Michigan, Republicans forced through the emergency manager law, which affected Flint. 
voters overturned that at a referendum. The Republican legislature reenacted it anyway. And the water in Flint gets poisoned and, you know, kids get really, really sick. And this is this is what happens when people who are not in the majority get complete control of our government. So what do we do? I mean, I know that's a basic question, but because this has been there since the beginning of this country, like some element of this gerrymandering has been there since the beginning. So what do we do from the first time a guy got off a ship and said, hey, black guy, stand over there. Right. (laughs) That was the original gerrymandering. Right. I mean, like from it's 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 such a core part of this democracy. And what do you do? Do do you just hope the Democrats come up with a better strategy or become more effective? uh, You know, or, or is it do we have to write laws? Do we do we prevent this from happening? Do we change how the census is done? The Democrats, what they're trying to do right now is something called Advantage 2020. They're trying to run the same thing that the Republicans did back in 2010, and they're trying to get organized for it now. They've got $75 million targeted to spend on it, and they're going to try and take over state uh, legislatures. The problem is the Republicans came out a couple days later and said, oh, that, that, that sounds really, really nice. We're going to run Red Map 2, and we're going to spend $130 million on it. So the Democrats are going to have less money no element of surprise that the Republicans had. And the hardest thing is they still have to win on all of these tilted maps in order to have a chance of tipping these legislative chambers back for a chance at drawing fairer lines next time. It is a triple bank shot. And, uh, you know, I don't think that the, the likelihood of it happening any is, 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 is very strong. Um, you could have a solution with a ballot referendum that enforces some kind of nonpartisan or as is more likely bipartisan redistricting. Um, A handful of states do this now, Arizona, California, Florida, Ohio. So if you can force a redistricting gerrymandering referendum, it's really popular amongst all kinds of people. Um, It's not necessarily a partisan issue. I think all people recognize that this is a problem and they would like to see a way to find it fixed. The other solution would be a judicial one. If you could find a way to make the Supreme Court say no to partisan gerrymandering, They have never agreed to say no to partisan gerrymandering in the past, but the last time it reached them um, in the Veith case out of Pennsylvania back in the 2000s, they turned aside that case. But Justice Kennedy did say, I don't see partisan gerrymandering here in part because I don't see a justiciable standard for it. But if somebody could show me a justiciable standard that proves when partisan gerrymandering is happening, I'm open to taking a look at it. So lots of stats nerds and uh, political science professors and and law school folks got to work at trying to show him a standard. And some of those cases are now working their way through the courts, including a really important case in Wisconsin right now that could be headed to the Supreme Court as soon as next year. So can Nate Silver just fix this? Like, can we just hope Nate Silver fixes it? If we all just uh, have faith and stay calm and believe that Nate will fix everything, um, it's 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 highly it's highly possible. Um, but I think it's what's the, what? Yeah, can Nate figure out the percentage chances of him fixing this? 
Hey, Nate Silver, the genius behind 538.com, who I've referred to as White Jesus. Come on our podcast. Let's talk about statistics. And baseball. Uh, so how does this all relate to the Trump question? Oh, boy. Yeah, I think it's a direct line. You know, I mean, when you draw lines like this, you get a different kind of politics. You get a different kind of Republican Party. And what the Republicans did was they pushed out any moderating voices. They created a solid conservative district, and they, it gave rise to a different kind of congressman who was sort of pure in their craziness, united in their distaste of deal-making or compromise. It it changed the very tone and, and style of our politics. And when you eliminate competitive general elections, which we have now in 400 of 435 of these districts, you don't have to talk to anybody but the base. Their only fear is a primary. And they put the angry base in charge, and they created the conditions for Trump to walk in and steal the party away. They had this drive for ideological purity, and nothing got done, and it created a lot of anger and frustration. Um, in walks Trump, says, "Hey, I'm the I'm the strong man who can who can do all this." And <laughs> so they basically drew the neighborhoods exactly how they wanted to, and said, "Let's make a neighborhood of only older, angry white people, mm-hmm. and then play to them." And then suddenly, the problem is, is that you have a neighborhood now that is only older, angry white people. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. I mean, if you look at what happened, even though the country is becoming less white. In these Republican districts, between 2000 and 2010, these districts become 10% whiter in some cases. There's a great example down in North Carolina. There was a congressman named uh, Heath uh, Shuler who was a Democrat from from North Carolina. Uh, you may remember him as a mediocre quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Um, and he was <laughs> I do remember bad. him as he that. Yeah. Very bad. He was a pretty conservative Democrat. Um, and he represented Asheville and sort of the, you know, western mountain towns of North Carolina. And Asheville's a pretty kind of, you know, funky, vegan, a cafe kind of place. And the western mountains of North Carolina are a little more conservative. That's where Eric Rudolph hit out. Um, so Schuler was a pretty decent guy to represent that area. Um, when the Republicans draw new lines in North Carolina in 2011, they crack Asheville in half, trying to create another Republican district. And they draw this district that is won by a guy named Mark Meadows, a Tea Party conservative uh, who essentially runs on a platform of sending President Obama back to Kenya. This is actually something he says in the middle of his campaign. 2012 is the time that we're going to send Mr. Obama home to Kenya or wherever it is. We're going to do it. And the voters down there kind of thoughtfully, you know, stroke their chins over grits and say, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I think I'll send old Mark up to Washington and see if he can do just that. Meadows wins. He wins going away and he gets reelected with, you know, wildly over 60 percent of the vote. And one of the things he does is he files the parliamentary motion that takes down John Boehner as speaker. Um, So in a way, this guy who would not have been in Congress, if not for the way that they drew the lines, they created the House Freedom Caucus. They created the conditions under which the only debate within the Republican Party is, I'm really crazy. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm much crazier than you are. And as a result... Boehner gets toppled. Now Paul Ryan can't even cobble together a, a a coalition within his own caucus. This, in some ways, 
backfired on the Republicans as deeply as it ratfucked the, the entire country. So is there a way to say this, like, like Karl Rove is kind of like uh, Dr. Victor Frankenstein? And yeah, I think they created a monster they can't control. <laughs> so gerrymandering's the lightning bolt, and now Trump <laughs> is Frankenstein's monster. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Written by a nice reporter. Now the poor guy, you got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, it's alive! I don't remember! I think that is just about right. <laughs> so what does a fair district look like, like if, if things were the way they should be? Well, a fair district looks normal. It respects communities of interest. Um, and it keeps neighborhoods with certain interests that are the same together. Um, I mean, if you look at a state like Iowa, they have managed to draw districts that, if you look at the map, it looks completely square and fair, and the districts actually look square. Um, They have perhaps the best system in the country for this. They have a nonpartisan state board of bureaucrats that everybody trusts you know, both sides will try to beat each other's brains out, but they trust in the fair-mindedness and fair play of the board that draws these lines. And this is in Iowa, you said? Yes. Is it maybe because Iowa's not the most diverse state that they were able <laughs> to do that? Like, I mean, I know I'm about to get some heat from Iowa when I say that, but let's be real. Iowa is not, uh, you know, North Carolina. But politically, I don't think this necessarily has to do with race. I think I think you have fair elections in that state between Democrats and Republicans. It's 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 a pretty good swing state. What you have to do to have fair districts is to t- is to have people drawing them who are not pressing for partisan political advantage. Michigan, North Carolina, these states look like this because people are intentionally trying to draw as many minority voters as they can into one seat. And in order to do so, they have to draw these districts that sort of stretch their tentacles up in every which way. Hold up, wait a minute. So I think we should take a second here to break down the two types of gerrymandering that Daly is talking about. There's packing and there's cracking. Packing is where you cram all the voters of one party into one district, whether it makes sense or not. Like his example of all the poor black people in Michigan. That, in turn, made the surrounding whiter and wealthier districts more white and more wealthy and more decidedly Republican. Cracking is where you split a party stronghold by dividing those voters into many districts. So if you have a neighborhood that's extremely liberal, you divide up parts of that neighborhood and put them into more conservative districts, essentially making them conservative now. And this is one of the things that David is getting at that is worth reiterating. By drawing more polarized districts, you fundamentally change the way you satisfy the voters of that district. If a district is quote-unquote fair, a politician has to listen and engage with many interests, but not in a polarized district. Yeah, and this isn't just a Republican thing. That's both parties. Even if gerrymandering has made a super liberal district, it still creates the same problem. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a problem I'm interested in. All right, right, Berkeley. Yeah. With changing national demographics, uh, you know, the fact that there's going to be a smaller white population in the next 20 to 30 years, how does that play out with gerrymandering? I mean, it makes the Republicans more determined to get better at it. 
this entire plan comes about because the Republicans know that they can't win if the votes are counted in a fair way. After 2012, they've lost the popular vote in five out of the last six presidential elections. Gerrymandering the districts is the way to draw themselves control, even though they're a minority party. It works at the state level. It works at the congressional level. And the amount of sort of voter ID laws you're seeing, uh, 22 states this year have new restrictions on voting. This is part of a strategy. And, And 20 of those 22 states are controlled entirely by Republicans. So it's one side that is forcing through laws about voter ID and voter fraud and early voting and reducing the number of polling stations and changing the absentee rules. This is what you do when you are in the minority. You try to change the rules of the game. And I don't think that they will fight any less hard when there are fewer of them. Uh, So, I mean, because this is the thing about this, too, is that it it gets back to the thing that I feel about all the time that, you know, I live in Berkeley, People's Republic of Berkeley. So I have many conversations all day about how the whole system is a scam, like the entire, from mm-hmm. top to bottom, from from left to right. And some of that I go, I I argue with people with like, no, you have to really have it. And then there's times like, so I go, yeah, like it just feels like it's it's a pyramid scheme or and I feel like with the Electoral College people sort of starting to come around to like, maybe this doesn't make sense. Like, maybe we should just count everybody's vote equally, you know, instead of like putting it. Just wait until they gerrymander the electoral college. Uh, I mean, that was what they wanted to do in some of these states. So it isn't, but I feel like, isn't it already gerrymandered? It can get worse. Oh, it could get much, much worse. So earlier I compared David to a false flag YouTube video. If you don't know, False flag videos are those videos that say things like 9-11 was an inside job or Sandy Hook didn't happen. You know, just the worst parts of everything. Well, at this point, David's about to go into a run of how horrible everything really is right now. But just to really put a bow on it, we're going to use some of that music from those false flag videos that make you think the world is crazy. Here we go. You have gerrymandered state legislatures considering election reform that would redistribute electoral votes, not to the winner of the popular vote, but congressional district by congressional district. So you would take a state like Pennsylvania, which even though it votes blue reliably every year and has since 1988, 13 of the 18 members of of Congress are Republicans. So you would have a popular vote and it would go 13-5 and then the uh, two for, for the senators would probably get distributed to the winner. So instead of 20 votes for the Democrat, you'd see 13 for the Republican and seven for the Democrat, despite the Democrat getting more votes. Oh, God. Okay, Harry, I'm going to go. He's making my stomach hurt. (laughs) (laughs) David, I I like you very much. However, you've brought us great sadness. (laughs) I am sorry that this story has no happy ending. Can you give us something hopeful or positive or something that feels like a, a, a thing we can do is, the, is, is there anything or here? A, place we can can, regis- a place where we can buy torches something we can register to vote and we can turn out because the one thing that can swamp these lines is real voter turnout you can't draw lines this craftily and sneakily unless if you know who turns out and who doesn't and they were just that cynically crafted And if the people who the Republicans think won't turn out to vote actually show up, we can swamp these lines. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, it's it's like 
it's it's crazy because at the end of all this is all so complicated there's technology involved like so much history like all sorts of lists being in all this such a complicated system to rig elections and you're telling me the answer to all of this is voting <laughs> it all comes back to schoolhouse rock in the that's end. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought it all around because I was starting to uh, – I was going to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and just look into the water and, and see how inviting <laughs> it looked. But uh, thanks for bringing it all around. So, Hari, what did we learn today? We learned that gerrymandering actually uh, is named after a guy named uh, Elbridge Gerry and the word salamander, which is very bizarre. The whole thing's very bizarre. <laughs> I learned we should be pronouncing it gerrymandering. I learned that Karl Rove is still to blame. I stopped blaming him the last few years. You owe him like uh, several years of blame that you did not give yeah, him. Yeah, I was backing off a little bit just because I'm like, oh, Trump and all this stuff, and I'm, Rove doesn't like this either. And I'm like, wait a second. This is all <laughs> his fault. This. He did this. Yes. I learned that voting is crucial. I did not know that. Did you know that, that voting is fundamental? <laughs> yeah, I guess I learned that even though the system is totally rigged and totally set up to exploit uh, poor people and people of color, that we should still go out and vote? It's kind of heroic in a way, you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. like it, like voting is, uh, we're the underdog as the American people and voting is our only weapon. That's really romantic. That's a romantic way to look yeah. at democracy, and I feel weird talking like this. Yeah. <laughs> it, do- it doesn't sound like me at all to be that romantic about it. I learned that I think he would be really effective as, like, the villain in, like, a James Bond movie because he has really scary information, but he stays calm the whole time, which makes it even scarier. It's one of those classic James Bond villains where you're like, why is this guy the villain? And you're like, oh, God. It's, it's like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Mission Impossible 3. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks to all who have commented on Twitter using the hashtag Politically Reactive and also the email address politicallyreactive at firstlook.org. We'll address some of your questions and comments very soon, so keep them coming. And if you haven't done so, hit that subscribe button on whatever you use to listen. Thanks to those who have left us a review. It really helps us spread the word about our podcast. And if you haven't done so, maybe today's the day? If you're really digging us, check out some of the other stuff we're up to. I have an album out on Kill Rockstars called Mainstream American Comic. You can get that all over the internet. I'm also touring around the country. If you're listening to this on Wednesday, August 17th, I'll be in San Diego at American Comedy Co. And the next week, I'll be in uh, Burlington, Vermont. I've got some other cool podcasts like Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period. That show's on the Earwolf Network, which just launched the show Fake the Nation, and Hari was one of their guests. I also have a live radio show and podcast called Come Out Right Now. In fact, we've got a show this Thursday, August 18th, and Hari is going to be a guest. It's going to be Politically Reactive right now. We've got some tickets left if you live in the Bay Area, but if not, check out how to listen live or get the podcast by going to KALW.org. Politically Reactive is a production of First Look Media and distributed by Panoply. The team includes Nick Borenstein, Lisa Leingang, Erica Moo, and Max Jacobs. The show is engineered by Ted Muldoon. Thanks to KALW in San Francisco and KUOW in Seattle for letting us use your studios. And thanks to Brontez Purnell for providing music for the show.
Hey everyone, one last note. We also want to give a very special thank you to Evgeny Taylor for use of the track Unveiling Soul when we pretended we were making a false flag video. You can check out their music at the Free Music Archive, and there's a link in our iTunes description. Thanks.